The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And so I do worry more about a position in which Congress is opening up the immunity can of worms, so to speak, uh, than one in which it's cabining uh, state court exercise or state prosecutorial discretion with a view to kind of preserving uh, federal foreign relations authority. Uh, So I I think either way, we're bound to see some sort of legislative response. And the outcome of this case uh, will obviously matter to Hulk Bank in terms of whether or not this particular prosecution goes forward. Um, But after that, I think the can will essentially be kicked to the, uh, the legislative arena. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for January 18th, 2023. In 2019, the U.S. government took a step that it had never taken before. It brought criminal charges against a foreign state-owned bank, Turkiye Halk Bankazi or Halk Bank, which is majority owned by the country of Turkiye, till recently known as Turkey, for evading U.S. sanctions on Iran. Turkiye in turn argued that such a move was not only unprecedented, but prohibited by the legal immunities it is entitled to under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, or FSIA. Yesterday, those arguments reached the U.S. Supreme Court, where both sides seemed to agree on just one thing, that the court's eventual decision could well have major consequences for the United States and its foreign relations. To talk through oral arguments in Hulkbank, I sat down with two leading sovereign immunity experts, Professor Shemen Keitner of the University of California College of the Law in San Francisco and Professor Ingrid Wirth of Vanderbilt Law School. We discussed how each side reads the FSIA and other related statutes, whether any of the justices seemed particularly persuaded, and where the court, as well as the broader issue, seems likely to go from here. It's the Lawfare Podcast for January 18th. Hulk Bank hits the Supreme Court. So we're here today to talk about a really interesting case. This is the Hulk Bank, the Turkey Bank Halkazi case, Hulk Bankazi case, excuse me where we are seeing a Turkish state-owned bank facing criminal prosecution by the United States government and challenging the ability of the United States government, the federal government, to pursue that prosecution on both jurisdictional and sovereign immunity grounds. Ingrid, let me start with you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the facts behind this case, how we ended up in the circumstances and, and the procedural steps that have led us to this kind of culminating debate before the Supreme Court. 
Yeah, Scott, thank you for the question and thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, it's a it's a fascinating case. As you say, uh, the U.S. government has brought criminal charges against a Turkish bank. The underlying facts deal with laundering Iranian assets in violation of U.S. sanctions regimes. So Hulk Bank is majority owned, and Hulk Bank is the defendant. Hulk Bank is majority owned by the Turkish government, making it a state-owned agency or agency and instrumentality using some of the the common law uh, language. Um, The case involves negotiations, apparently at the very highest levels from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, have apparently had um, very high-level conversations um, with the Erdogan regime about uh, how to handle this case. Several of the Individual officials involved um, have also been indicted, and if I understand correctly, have been convicted. So that's uh, uh, some of the background. Again, it's a very wide-ranging case, both in terms of its uh, global significance uh, and in terms of the statutory and constitutional issues that it raises. So obviously, you know, this isn't the first time the United States government has encountered issues with foreign governments, certainly even foreign state-owned enterprises, although they are the way they are used in the modern era, as we heard the U.S. government argue before the court today, is a bit of a new development and has led the U.S. government to develop new approaches. But Shimen, tell us a little bit about how this fits into the broader pattern of approaching these sorts of questions. Why is this such a novel case? What makes it such a novel case? Or is it less novel than the two sides seem to be framing it? Um, Well, hi, Scott. Hi, Ingrid. It's great to be joining you both again on the Lawfare podcast to talk about our favorite topic of sovereign immunity. And uh, as you just said, I think on the one hand, this is an issue that has come to the forefront because of the U.S. government's increased use of criminal law tools to deal with things like sanctions evasion. On the other hand, the question of whether criminal jurisdiction exists when it comes to foreign states and their instrumentalities is not a new question. I actually wrote about it some years ago when the Mueller investigation uh, spun off a case that involved a grand jury subpoena of a foreign state-owned bank. And at that point, the Supreme Court declined to get involved uh, when the bank appealed from uh, the D.C. Circuit's decision that the subpoena could go forward. So uh, this is not a new issue, but I think it certainly is uh, an issue that has received increased focus. uh, And having uh, Lisa Blatt, who's a, a very experienced Supreme Court advocate take up Halk Bank's cause, I think uh, both contributed significantly to the Supreme Court's decision to grant cert uh, and also to the very interesting turns that the argument took this morning. So I think it's useful as we approach this argument to really kind of think of it in two or maybe three chunks, and we can break those out and talk about them. Before we do that, I do want to note, you know, the parties spent some time in their briefing and the lower court on an issue as to whether the Second Circuit, whose initial opinion on this was was, a, was on appeal and was granted cert over, even had jurisdiction to consider this issue at this phase of the prosecution. That issue has really fallen away. We didn't see it really addressed in oral argument at all, barely addressed in the briefing at this stage, only really raised during the cert phase. So we're not going to address that in this podcast. But we'll flag that it exists because it did get a little attention in the briefing. The real arguments we saw breakdown here is first a jurisdictional argument 
as to whether the kind of defining U.S. code statutory provision that establishes criminal jurisdiction, which essentially gives federal courts jurisdiction over violations of any federal criminal law, in not quite that language, but not far off from that language, actually applies to foreign sovereigns, with Hulk Bank arguing that does not. And then a second question as to whether the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, the statute that lays out our statutory framework for sovereign immunity in the United States, applies to criminal actions such as this. And that incorporates kind of a secondary question about commercial activities exception within that statutory framework that that we will also discuss. But let's start with this jurisdictional question. Ingrid, I'll, I'll start with you a little bit because we saw really an interesting set of exchanges where Lisa Blatt representing Hulk Bank, again, a very experienced litigator, came in very hot on this issue, I think it's fair to say, and actually kept returning to it time and time again even after, at least to my ear, it did not sound like it got a very warm reception really among any of the justices on the court. What do you make of the argument that Turkey is putting forward here about whether or not this broad statutory language should even be read to include foreign sovereigns in the first place and where you think the court might be leaning in, on this particular issue? Scott, I agree absolutely with your sense of of how the argument went um, from Ms. Blatt on that point. So this the statute in question here, this kind of opening argument is 18 U.S.C. Uh, 3231. It establishes criminal jurisdiction over all offenses against the laws of the United States. Um, like so much in this case, it doesn't say anything specific about foreign sovereigns or anything specific that answers the question. Um, it does say all offenses against the United laws of the United States, and that's the basis for the government's position that it confers subject matter jurisdiction. Hulk Bank looks to history and looks to the Schooner Exchange case, uh, looks to some cases from the 1940s, and says that jurisdictional generally worded statutes of this kind don't necessarily apply to foreign sovereigns or their agencies and instrumentalities. To take the last part of your question first, gosh, this argument to my mind, and I'm interested if, Shemen, if you agree, got no love uh, from the court um, at all. As you point out, they, they, they just continually moved to um, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And, you know, I, I will say, and, and, and I, th- I think it was Justice Thomas that raised this point and some of the other justices too, about, um, you know, kind of the oddity of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which grants links immunity to both personal jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction. The use of the word jurisdiction historically with respect to immunity has far more often referred to personal jurisdiction than to subject matter jurisdiction. And the FSAI links these two issues in, in a little bit of an, uh, of an odd way. And in any event, I, I don't see this argument prevailing. I think um, the court will conclude that 1332-31 uh, um, does confer subject matter jurisdiction here. And I suppose just to uh, to weigh in, Ingrid, I, I do agree with your assessment. I must say when I first read Hulk Bank's brief on the merits, which really is the, the one that came up with this argument, as far as I can tell, it struck me as as quite ingenious in the sense that it was very much appealing to, I think what a lot of uh, Supreme Court advocates these days feel is the kind of originalist bent of the current bench, whether or not that's uh, an accurate assessment, I, I leave to others. In conversations after reading this brief, I 
must admit I referred to it as a sort of faux originalism, because I don't think, as you said, that there are any defendant-specific carve-outs from the grant of criminal jurisdiction in Title 18, nor do I think that the Schooner Exchange can fairly be read to suggest that there are. So I found it very interesting as, as sort of a point of advocacy, and I was actually quite interested to hear that Justice Thomas, as you alluded to, asked the first question, and he put it even more starkly. He said, well, can't you waive immunity, uh, which of course is a sort of fundamental tenet of immunity doctrine is that it's waivable. And if it were indeed a question of subject matter jurisdiction, setting aside the particular structure of the FSIA, we all know from one else of pro that, uh, which I think we both teach, that subject matter jurisdiction is not a waivable defense, but immunity certainly is. And so for all those reasons, uh, I think that the the attempt was quite interesting uh, and novel to try to say that this criminal jurisdiction statute contains an implicit carve out with respect to certain categories of defendants. And then we can argue later on about whether that category is limited to foreign states themselves or would also include their instrumentalities. But I, I guess the, um, the originalist argument didn't fly as, as she had hoped. Shimon, I want to actually dig deeper on your point about kind of advocate tactics that you raised here. Because that actually struck me as an interesting question as well. Because I, I will note Lisa Blatt, who again was arguing this, really came in, like I said, super hot on the issue and very aggressive, even confrontational, strangely with Justice Thomas and a few other justices who posed the initial line of questioning to her, at least to my ear. And again, kept coming back to this point and acting kind of exasperated or even shocked by the idea that, you know, as she describes it, contrary to global practice and contrary to historical practice, that this was even a, a put on the table that the federal government could bring criminal charges of this sort and even read this statute, which again, the language updates back to the founding or very close to the founding, to be read it that way is such a, a buck of tradition. And she was she seemed like emotionally invested in it, which I doubt she actually was. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she really drank the Kool-Aid on these arguments. But that strikes me as probably a strategic move in terms of tone and framing, um, maybe for the court, maybe for her clients. Do you have any thoughts about whether the, what role this argument may have played in kind of the meta debate in terms of shaping how the court thinks about this, even if it wasn't put forward on its own merits as a winner? What other impact Lisa Blatt and her co-counsel might have been hoping it would have? So, I mean, rhetorical strategies, right, are, are very much, I think, a matter of personal style. And although I haven't heard other arguments by this advocate, apparently she's done quite a few. And so I'm sure she did what has worked for her in the past. I did notice sort of two things. One is, it is certainly the strength of the rhetoric was not matched by the substantive understanding of the issues. And I think we saw this in the briefing as well. So there was a passage that, again, only international law nerds could get worked up about, but in which um, Hawking's brief said, you know, the government seems to be suggesting preposterously that, you know, it would have been fine in the 1790s to prosecute a state of Spain or, you know, fill in the blank, uh, but it would have been a crime to prosecute a consul because, as Hulk Bank correctly observes, there was actually a, a prohibition on prosecuting diplomats, but uh, consuls aren't diplomats. And so it's that sort of wrinkle where, on the one hand, you know, point taken. On the other hand, I think the court today in its questioning uh, was really trying to, to grapple with the nuances and not just accept these kind of broad brushstroke, almost, you know, 
statements of indignation, as you say. So today, another one um, that falls into a similar category, she suggested that if Congress, you know, was worried about criminal prosecutions, and again, I think the government's whole argument, as we'll get to later, is that Congress wasn't worried about that when it enacted the FSIA, but that if, you know, Congress surely would have put some provisions in there for things like service because uh, you know, we wouldn't want to insult foreign sovereigns and in, in how we serve them in criminal proceedings. And so we would want to specify that service would have to be on the embassy. And anyone who's followed service cases know that, in fact, the U.S. government and other countries are adamant that you can't and shouldn't serve embassies. And so I think that the idea of trying to seize on this idea that Hulk Bank is Turkey, Turkey, I suppose we're now saying itself, uh, and to generate indignation uh, and sort of invoke these cataclysmic consequences that may arise was, you know, certainly a, a strategy available to her, but I'm, I'm not sure that it really packed that punch. In fact, both the briefing and the oral argument in, in both, she went so far as to suggest that there's a, a prohibition, uh, congressionally acted pro- enacted prohibition on criminal prosecution of foreign banks. But if we wanted to go to war with Turkey over this, uh, that would be the appropriate policy response, a tool available in the executive branch's toolbox, which, which seemed to me rather upside down. But uh, that was just my, my assessment of, of that strategy. I agree with Shemen there. And I, I think one of the difficulties, perhaps, with the rhetorical argument and in, in the briefing is a lot of this case, all the way through the statutory, the common law arguments, kind of has to deal with the fact that we just don't have many cases like this, right? There aren't criminal prosecutions of uh, foreign sovereigns. There aren't state court cases. And, you know, the, I think the justices kind of struggled with this throughout, what do we make of silence? The statute is silent on so many uh, important issues here. And I, I think in some respects, it's not clear how that silence cuts, right? Maybe it means um, that there was no criminal jurisdiction at the framing over uh, foreign sovereigns. You know, maybe it just means the international prohibition was so strong that no one thought to bring any of these cases. Um, I, I think it makes the indignation point a little bit more difficult and nuanced, as Shaman said. Okay, well, I, th- I think we can do away with this argument then, at least for the time being, because it just not, did not, I think we're all agreed, it did not seem to get a lot of bites from the justices. Although, again, we'll wait and see what happens when they actually write their opinions. So let's go on to the actual other main statutory argument, the FSIA argument, where essentially Turkey argues that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act applies to criminal prosecution and provides kind of categorical sovereign immunity to foreign governments, which includes Hulk Bank arguably, although we can get to that for a second as well, and puts them under this grant of immunity that it provides. And it really hangs its hat kind of on on three main statutory arguments uh, or statutory provisions in the FSIA. One, 28 U.S.C.'s 1330, which gives an affirmative grant of jurisdiction to federal courts in civil cases that are covered by exceptions to sovereign immunity in the FSIA. So they're kind of saying, hey, look, there are there's general sovereign immunity, but the FSI, you federal courts have have jurisdiction over the cases that fall into the exceptions to that immunity the FSIA covers out. Uh, all those worth noting, I think Lisa Blatt conceded that if you don't buy her 3231 argument, her other jurisdictional argument we just talked about, that that is not quite as persuasive. Um, then the real meat of the argument is on 
28 U.S. Code 1604. This is a provision that basically says straight out, says we're going to give immunity to the jurisdiction of federal courts, uh, sorry, of federal and state courts to foreign governments without distinguishing between civil and criminal matters. Uh, so on the, on the plain reading, it seems to say, hey, any sort of jurisdiction of the courts is out of question against foreign governments, except where these exceptions apply. And then one provision that we saw come up a lot in oral argument, interestingly, although it really didn't get quite as much attention in the briefing, it wasn't even included in all the briefs or discussed in all the briefs, if I recall correctly, is the FSIA's removal provision, a provision that allows for the removal of cases initiated in state court um, where they run into FSIA issues to be and, and involving foreign governments to be removed to federal court. The advocates and the court particularly kept noting and coming back to the fact that it only applied to civil actions, not to criminal actions. And that seemed to create what at least some justices were questioning, whether that's a reasonable framework that you would allow prosecutions to go forward against foreign governments at the state level without providing for removal provision. Turkey, of course, argued all this comes together to essentially say the FSIA means there is no ability for federal courts to hear criminal prosecutions against foreign governments, that it's barred by the FSIA. Even if 3231 doesn't do it, the FSIA does and takes away any jurisdiction that might have been given. Shemed, you submitted a really useful amicus brief in this case that where one of your co-authors in the brief was actually Mark Feldman, a former office of legal advisor, colleague of both of ours at the State Department, and somebody who's involved in the FSIA drafting and negotiations. Tell us a little bit about what you make of these statutory arguments and the U.S. government's response to them and how you read them fitting in with kind of the intent and history of the statutory language that was the, that is the FSIA today. Um, well, thanks for that, that great lead-in, Scott. And yes, this brief was really, I think, a, a labor of love for Mark. Uh, the two of us spent uh, many hours together on it, having not previously worked together directly. And um, it was really a, a wonderful experience. And we're so grateful to uh, attorneys at Jenner who, who stepped in and gave us guidance and, and filed the brief. So I think the points that we wanted to convey to the court were twofold. In the first instance, and, and importantly, as you say, to provide a drafter's perspective. And I think the legislative history speaks for itself. Certainly, the court will not have the benefit of an actual drafter's view in many statutory interpretation cases. And so it can't rely on that as a definitive guide, uh, as a matter of sort of canons of construction. However, uh, the court has been very clear in interpreting the FSIA in other cases that it looks to the statute's text, context, and purpose. And a lot of the justices today, I think, really focused in on that structural idea that, as Mark and I explain in the brief, Congress uh, enacted the FSIA at the request of the State Department and the Justice Department because private litigation against foreign states and their instrumentalities was getting out of hand. The State Department's procedures for dealing with suggestions of immunity in those cases were both time-consuming and politically fraught. And the emergence of the so-called restrictive theory of sovereign immunity under which states themselves let alone their instrumentalities, could be sued for their commercial activities, provided a set of judicially administrable standards that Congress decided in 1976 the courts should uh, administer. And so I think if it had 
occurred to the drafters that this statutory scheme could in any way be interpreted as affecting the criminal jurisdiction of courts under Title 18. They absolutely would have put the word civil before the word jurisdiction in that section 1604 that you mentioned, which says uh, that the courts of the United States shall not have jurisdiction over foreign states unless an exception to immunity in the statute applies. Uh, The other thing that I think the drafters would not have done had they envisioned uh, the problems that the justices were confronting today is they wouldn't have defined instrumentalities, uh, and in particular, they wouldn't have defined majority state-owned corporations as foreign states for purposes of the statute, which the current FSIA does. And uh, again, the reasons for that, uh, as Mark and I explain, had really to do with the particular problems that uh, the executive branch was dealing with in the 60s and 70s about folks who were going after state assets uh, in cases that really involved separate juridical entities that were the the instrumentalities and the state-owned corporations. And there was a colloquy uh, during the oral argument about which kinds of state-owned corporations would fall within this definition of foreign state. And Lisa Blatt was adamant that it would only be sort of a certain type of corporation that had you know, direct control by the government, uh, not simply a 51% ownership rule, but the text of the FSIA just sets out a 51% ownership rule. So the statute taken as a whole, and in particular, the the bill that became the FSIA, uh, really was, as you indicate, exclusively concerned with problems arising from civil litigation. But I think the question uh, for the court will be, you know, do you uh, interpret 1604 literally uh, and disregard that context and purpose? Uh, And to be fair, 1604 is phrased extremely broadly. Or do you uh, look at the structure of the statute as a whole? And although I was interested to hear, actually, on my way into the office this morning, listen to a podcast discussion between two other law professors about this case who uh, sort of seemed to converge on the view that 1604 should be taken to mean what it says, even if it doesn't say what it meant. I I was heartened to hear that more of the justices seemed willing to uh, not to take an acontextual view of this particular provision. Well, that actually, we I may have listened to the same podcast, and I was going to ask a question about this, but I'll, I'll jump the queue and move it up a little bit. Uh, and and that is at least one podcast I listened to. Maybe it's the same one, maybe not. The divided argument with Will Bowd and Dan Epps, which is a great podcast, very smart guys, worth listening to. They actually came out on this and said essentially, you know, the plain stat- textual reading of Section sixteen oh four, the plain language, seems so clear cut. They actually were predicting a nine zero with maybe some concurrences around some methodology points, but thought it was a pretty clear cut win uh, for Turkey on that point alone. Which I agree, it didn't seem like the court was that so clearly on board here. Ingrid, uh, let me turn to you on that question actually, because you've written a fair amount about how you know the court thinks about foreign relations cases versus regular cases. And then also this question of uh, you know statutory interpretation about you know how much do you look at the plain language how much of it is about context do we see kind of some of the 
broader factors around the FSIA entering into an equation? Could that be an explanation why certain of the justices are more open to arguments that depart from the easiest kind of Occam's razor textual reading of the statute, or at least of 1604? Is this a normal statutory interpretation case, or is there something else kind of happening in this context? Yeah, that's an that's an interesting, super interesting question. And so, I mean, your idea is that 1604 seems to apply in a very straightforward way on its terms. And if it does, that makes Hulk Bank immune. I, I would just note then there's the secondary question about the um, 1605 and its relationship to 1604. Uh, but I think what your point is suggesting is, look, we read 1604, basically what it says, and it means that Hulk Bank is immune. But then the difficulty with that, I think, from the perspective that you're saying is that Hulk Bank wins. And if you think of foreign relations as an exceptional field and one in which deference to the executive branch is especially important in making decisions related to national security and foreign relations, maybe we ought to give a a little bit of a pause before we interpret 1604 that way. And maybe you're saying this would be a super easy case, except the justices are then a little bit maybe uncomfortable about where 1604 takes them. And I agree that the argument was very wide ranging and didn't suggest to me that the justices are fully committed to the just straight up 1604 position, at least in the first instance. Also, of course, we'll have to see what the opinion actually says. I do, um, you know, I have argued on the, the pages of the Harvard Law review against foreign relations exceptionalism. So I don't think when we interpret 1604, especially in the context of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which as Shemin said, was designed to take deference away from the executive branch. I don't think we should put on the thumb on the scale for the interpretation that the executive branch gives to the statute. So um, I I hope foreign relations exceptionalism um, doesn't play a role in the statutory interpretation. And I know we'll get to the common law arguments uh, later. I very much hope it doesn't play a role in the common law or arguments either. And maybe I'll just uh, to finger that by saying, and I don't think you were suggesting otherwise, Ingrid, that one doesn't need to defer to the executive branch, I think, in order to read the statute, you know, with its proper context and history in mind. And, you know, looking at what Congress intended, even though the statute was proposed by the executive branch, I think gets us to the same place. So more of a structural reading than the narrowest, more, most most straightforward textual reading a little bit um, of the statute. Yeah, I, I do think that's a that's a fair, to some extent, a fair way to to think about it, right? As as Justice, you know, I think it was Justice Kagan pointed out, you know, several of the other statutory provisions that you've uh, mentioned, Scott. Uh, fairly clearly apply only in civil cases. And so um, maybe it's kind of odd to read 1604 um, really broadly to include criminal cases when so much of the rest of the FSAA doesn't contemplate them at all. You know, so that's a, uh, you know, that's a a structural argument that I think is available to the court and available. And and of course, has been advanced by the government um, and Shemin. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, that actually leads us into the other kind of statutory sub-argument here that we should address, and that's the commercial activity exception. Um, This is an exception to the sovereign immunity that the FSIA kind of indisputably gives for over civil matters to foreign governments where they're engaged in certain types of commercial activities. And there's a debate over whether, even if Turkey is right that the FSIA applies to criminal actions such as this, whether the commercial activities exception would nonetheless allow the prosecution to move forward. Ingrid, let me let me start with you on this one as well. You know, we've got kind of conflicting readings of the provision around that tension of kind of the structural versus plain textual element here, where essentially Turkey says, well, yeah, the broader FSIA applies to both criminal and civil, particularly Section 1604, which deal gives broad immunity and gives it to both of those. But then the exceptions only apply to civil. There's no exceptions for immunity to criminal actions because the statute themselves just say civil, uh, meaning the, the actual statutory language or for the exceptions. The U.S. government pushes back on that and says, essentially, look, it's clearly that this was part of kind of the scheme that was anticipated the FSIA. If you are going to read the FSIA as applying here, and the US government thinks that's wrong, but they say, if you go so far, the commercial activity exception has to come in as well. What do you make of that argument uh, in that particular case? It's worth noting, we saw, I, th- I believe it was, I'm not, my ear is not perfectly tuned to their voices, but I think it was Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson coming in towards the end of oral argument with U.S. counsel, suggesting this might be an easy way out, um, with Justice Kavanaugh even suggesting this might be in these tough kind of Youngstown Category 2 ambiguity questions, a way to read the statute that kind of puts the power in Congress's hands to change it if it wants to. Uh, so there's at least a little bit of appetite of people kind of putting up a flag saying, here, here's one way to do away with this. What do you make of that argument? Could the commercial activity exception be an escape clause if you know justices are worried about the consequences here? Is that a reasonable way to read the statute? Sure. And I, I will I'd like to just note on the, you know, Congress could fix this if it if it wants. I think there's a uh, you know, sort of universal agreement that Congress could fix this <laughs> if it wanted. Um, and the question is sort of who, do, wh- where does the default lie, right? You know, maybe we should allow the prosecution to go forward. And if the if the Congress wants to fix it, they can, or maybe we should stop the prosecution. And if Congress wants to fix it, they can. So the Congress can fix that argument is is clearly right. But I, I heard the justices kind of making that in, in, in both, in, in, in both directions. With respect to your point about, about 1605, um, the second circuit did, you know, basically exactly this. It said, well, the commercial activity exception will apply here anyway. It will allow the prosecution to go forward. And so it doesn't really matter. We don't even have to decide whether 1604 applies because even if it does, 1605 creates creates an exception. It's more difficult to read 1605 as applying to criminal prosecutions than it is to read 1604 as applying to criminal prosecutions. Uh, So 1605 has language that says in any case in which the action is brought is based upon a commercial activity. And it's, it's just less 
straightforward as a textual matter that that language ought to encompass criminal cases. Um, I think there are some old cases as well suggesting that criminal conduct could n- never qualify as commercial, although I think those cases are, 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 are incorrectly decided. In any event, I think the 1605 argument is more difficult than the 1604 argument. And that also brings into play another issue that got some attention at the argument, and that is um, how do we think about prosecutions in in state court. So 1604, um, if it applies in criminal cases, grants immunity in state and federal courts. If 1605 does not apply to criminal prosecutions, uh, that would mean under 1604 that no exceptions apply, which would mean, for example, state court prosecutions would be absolutely prohibited. That's a result that I think Uh, some of the justices might be attracted to and perhaps is a reason to cover criminal prosecutions and 1605 to create no exceptions on the criminal side. I think Ingrid's um, point is very well taken. And actually, when I wrote about this issue of the FSIA and criminal jurisdiction in the Virginia Journal of International Law, I will say the one argument that I did not give, I think, sufficient weight to in that piece was this state court prosecution problem um, that, uh, to Lawfare's credit, I think you surfaced in a couple of pieces you recently published, Scott, by uh, Kurt Bradley and Jack Goldsmith. And I think it is a really important point. I mean, just picking off where Ingrid left off, I think there's an easy fix to that, right? There's, there's Congress stepping in and providing for some sort of removal. The questions that argument seem to, on the one hand, acknowledge that as far as we know, state and municipal authorities have not attempted to prosecute foreign states. On the other hand, just because it never occurred to them before doesn't mean it won't in the future, especially now that they've listened to this oral argument. And so I think the federal government's response to that is that such suits would be preempted. But again, as the colloquy at oral argument indicated, that would involve, you know, a state court agreeing with a preemption argument and or perhaps several rounds of litigation to get up to the U.S. Supreme Court in the final instance. There was also an idea perhaps that the U.S. government could suggest immunity in a state court case. But, you know, we'll talk about executive deference and the problems that would pose later. So uh, the state court issue, I think, is a real one potentially, but I don't think it's a reason to read the statute contrary to its context and purpose. And it is certainly true that the restrictive theory of sovereign immunity does not intrinsically distinguish between civil and criminal proceedings. And the one uh, criminal prosecution that was mentioned in the briefing in another country and was also mentioned at oral argument today was one involving a French court where there were two defendants in that case. And in fact, the court found that the sort of instrumentality that was engaging in sovereign acts was entitled to immunity from criminal prosecution, but that the instrumentality that was not engaging in sovereign acts would not be entitled to immunity. And we also, again, heard at oral argument, the justices wondering, well, if we're not looking at 1605, how do we draw that line? And and for that matter, even if we are looking at 1605, as, uh, as the U.S. government acknowledged, it's not 
particularly clear and explicit and a lot of the court's FSIA jurisprudence has in fact been dealing with you know, the nature versus purpose test with respect to commercial activities and exactly where to draw the line. I guess the, the one thing I will mention, aside from the fact that I do think pasting 1605 as a statutory matter onto the criminal jurisdiction problem, it, it does, even though that is what the Second Circuit did, uh, I don't think is, is conceptually particularly elegant. Um, but it was interesting to note that um, Eric Fagan, who argued for the U.S., I think said, on the one hand, the government would be satisfied with that result, if that is how the Supreme Court decides to get there, even though they don't believe the statute or any part of the statute uh, is relevant to this case. But he also said that the government's position is probably that the restrictive theory would permit proceeding civil or criminal in cases involving conduct that might not fall under the commercial activity exception as drafted in the FSIA. Um, And he said that with respect to two things. One, those who are students of the FSIA will know that the commercial activity exception in section 1605 includes certain nexus requirements to U.S. territory. Again, that was part of this scheme, as Ingrid mentioned at the outset, and Scott, I think you did too, in which this bearer of a statute deals with both personal jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction. And so these nexus requirements uh, are built into the statute. It sounded like the U.S. government is not convinced those nexus requirements are are compelled by the restrictive theory. And I, I would say that's probably right. There may be other constraints on the sort of territorial scope of the U.S. government's prosecutorial reach, but uh, the restrictive theory isn't isn't one of them. And then the other thing he said was that there might be some conduct that's not sovereign, but also not commercial. And, and I'm not sure if anyone else sort of found this as striking as I did, but the opening sentence of the U.S. government's argument um, started enumerating conduct that foreign instrumentalities would be able to engage in with impunity if the court were to find against the government in this case. And of course, money laundering is at the top of the list, and this is, and sanctions evasion is what this case is about. But if I'm not mistaken, the first example of that in the government's argument was election interference. Um, And I thought that was striking, because certainly we have seen uh, DOJ prosecuting, or at least indicting, individual foreign officials for uh, conduct that is not commercial. Uh, And certainly the foreign official immunity regime, as we learned in Samantar, is distinct from the foreign state immunity regime. Uh, But nonetheless, it it was interesting in the midst of everything else going on in this really complex argument uh, to hear the U.S. government making that point. So we now kind of arrive at that point where the court began to think and really probe with the litigants about what the consequences of accepting these arguments would be. And that point that you both raised about the state court prosecutions, which is tied up with that removal provision that kept getting brought up in oral argument time and again, is I think one of the foremost of those. Because if the FSIA doesn't apply, then presumably if so far as there are any specific sovereign immunity rules or other rules relating to criminal prosecution, they would come from common law, international law, through the lens of common law. Ingrid, while I start with you on this, tell us a little bit about what you think the right way to view that coming through is and how the litigants kind of framed it. The U.S. government 
kind of suggested there's no bar at least to a you know state-owned corporation engaged in commercial activities under federal common law. And notably, they basically said, hey, we think the fact that we've asserted this and we think we've argued sufficiently, the court should go ahead and rule that way now. Um, obviously, Turkey or the Hulk Bank argued the opposite direction. And so we had several justices suggesting, well, shouldn't we remand this to the Second Circuit if we find the FSIA doesn't apply so that they can flesh out what the actual you know, common law rules would be? What is your sense of what the common law is on this and how the parties argued it? You know, Is this something that we need to develop a little bit more or, or is there enough here to kind of resolve the matter or that the court would feel comfortable resolving the matter? So let me just begin by kind of framing the issues, which I don't think emerge super clearly from the argument itself. Let's assume, as you've suggested, that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act simply does not apply. 1604, the whole thing was not intended to apply and does not apply by its text in criminal cases. Then what do courts do about immunity? There are two potential responses to that, and they were sort of competing uh, throughout the argument. One is we might go back to a pre-Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act system for these kinds of cases in which the executive branch makes a determination about immunity. And the government says that's the process that we should apply here. The government, as the prosecutor, has decided these cases should go forward. And therefore, um, if the statute doesn't apply, uh, Hulk Bank is not entitled to immunity. So the executive suggestion regime would be one possible approach. Um, The other possible approach would be maybe federal common law applies. And the Supreme Court has already said um, in the Samantar case that in cases against foreign officials, to which the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act does not apply, courts should apply common law. And so these are, in, in essence, the two competing approaches to what to do if the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act does not apply. Now, to be sure, even if we take a common law regime, under that common law regime, we might still give some kinds of deference to the executive branch. For example, we might defer to the executive branch on a factual determination about the Hulk Bank's relationship to Turkey, um, for example. But the idea is the main power would still lie with the judicial branch to decide whether immunity applies or not. Justice Kagan and some of the other justices gave some good reasons not to use the executive suggestion system or not to say the executive branch has absolute control here. Uh, Justice Kagan, I think, rightfully points out we need to be worried about pressure on the executive branch if it controls common law immunity. This is exactly what happened in the pre-Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act space. Um, We actually know kind of how this works um, if the statute doesn't apply and we rely on the executive. Um, The executive receives a lot of pressure from foreign governments. Uh, Lisa Blatt and her argument and also said, look, this is kind of a due process problem with respect to prosecuting foreign uh, states and state-owned agencies and instrumentalities to have the government be able to come in and say, you win, you lose. So I, I, I have much more to say um, on this on this topic. Um, I think there are very strong reasons to apply federal common law here. It's more consistent with separation of powers. It is also consistent with Sabatino, um, a case cited by the government in the argument. The Sabatino case establishes the act of state doctrine, which is a federal common law doctrine um, that is applied, um, routinely applied um, with little problem. I would also point out 
that since the framing, um, federal common law applied in Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act cases, with the exception to some extent of a handful of cases in the 40s and 50s. Um, I'll leave it there, but I'm, I'm happy to continue talking about why federal common law should apply here. Well, that's really interesting because it struck me that you know federal common law was kind of the phrase that I'm not sure was actually ever uttered at oral argument. I may have missed it. It's not something that was really right. expressly raised, and there was there was this there seemed to be like an anxiety about raising it, kind of for yes. understandable reasons because it's such a contested issue, particularly among yes. certain members of the court. We heard this sort of actually very awkward exchange with. Uh, the Council for Solicitor General's Office, whose name I'm escaping me for the moment, apologies, in exchange, I think it was with Justice Alito, if I'm recalling correctly, where he's being pushed saying, you know, if the federal government was going to intervene in a state court proceeding where the state court's trying to prosecute a foreign government and wanted to get that out, what would be the legal authority that the federal government would be able to argue to say, here's why this prosecution should be preempted? And the obvious answer would be federal common law, at least one obvious answer. You know, you could also argue a version of preemption doctrine. Um, you know, there are a couple variations on this. Uh, Jack Goldsmith, Kurt Bradley, I think, do a good job in their most recent law for article, kind of going through a few different options here. Although with a little analytical valence, you can you can buy or, or take issue with, but I think a very useful overview. But instead, we saw the U.S. government counsel really try and avoid saying anything like that. And instead, does a very awkward kind of ultimately sheepish argument saying, well, probably the United States could enter in an executive agreement with the foreign government and to do away with that prosecution. They could just enforce that kind of hearkening Garamendi, a, a Supreme Court case involved executive agreement, and kind of trying to you know, smash that square peg into the round hole of this sort of scenario in a way that I don't even think he really found very persuasive, at least the way he presented it. Why is this such an allergic issue? Why does that hang over? And particularly Justice Alito and Gorsuch seemed really actually almost trying to get the US force the US government to say it because they clearly thought that was a problem. Can you flesh that out for us a little bit? You know, yes. So, you know, one of the easy answers here would be, you know, look if the executive branch controls immunity determinations, it controls them in as a as a constitutional matter, then it would control them in state court and in federal court. And if as you say, if federal common law applies, federal common law could be preemptive of state court actions as well. That is the federal common law governing sovereign immunity would apply in state court cases as well. I think one of the problems here is that, um, and as somebody who, who briefed this issue on the side of uh, against executive deference, formalist arguments work very well in each side, but then not very well. So I can make nice formalist arguments about separation of powers that says the executive branch is not the branch that makes law. The executive branch should not be permitted in our constitutional system to come in and pick winners and losers in cases. And that is exactly what the executive suggestion system would do, right? The executive branch can come in and say, Putin is entitled to immunity or Putin is not entitled to immunity. I think there are some real problems with that um, from a a formalist perspective as well as for policy reasons. But my argument that federal common law ought to apply also obviously has some formalist weaknesses as well. Federal common law that is preemptive of state law fits somewhat less comfortably in the supremacy clause and in other parts of the Constitution than one might wish. Areas of 
preemptive federal common lawmaking are quite narrow, obviously, after Erie. So I think this is part of what's of what's going on here. And it's, I think, part of why advocates avoided this kind of federal common law phrase. They didn't all want to go all in on sort of executive branch lawmaking either. But I do think for the listener, it probably clarifies kind of what the what the stakes are out there. And, and, and I, I do think it's important to acknowledge that federal common law is interstitial and is quite narrow. Um, in addition to Sabatino, however, federal common law, and this is a case that was mentioned repeatedly in the arguments in the Cuban bank cases, um, federal common law applies to issues of liability for sovereigns and state-owned enterprises. That is, can we sue the bank of the central bank of Cuba for the debts of Cuba itself? Interesting question, difficult issue. Supreme Court has said we are going to apply federal common law to decide that. So, too, in the act of state doctrine, the Supreme Court absolutely rejected the idea that we should use executive, the executive deference system. For those reasons and others, I think the federal common law um, argument wins out here, but it, it does have formalist problems, as does the executive suggestion position. So I think when it comes to separation of powers, I defer to Ingrid's excellent brief. But I think an interesting point to observe, Scott, when you're talking about kind of the the elephant in the room of federal common law, you know, no one dares speak its name. Uh, when the when the Samantar opinion came out more than ten years ago now, the court also came out nine zero. So yes, it was Dan and Will's podcast that I was introduced to through this, uh, their discussion of the Hulk Bank case, which I really appreciated sort of seeing it through the eyes of, of a non-international law nerd. But as you said, they they really were hung up on 1604. The interesting thing is in the Samantar 9-0 opinion, the answer the court gave to the very specific question of whether the FSIA applies or defines the immunity of individual officials was know that that's not the problem Congress had in mind when it enacted the statute, remand, <laughs> right? And in a, in a way, although this would be really dodging a lot of the, the questions that we've been raising on this podcast and that were discussed this morning at oral argument, you know, the court could say the FSIA doesn't affect criminal jurisdiction one way or the other, remand, right? And when the court reached that conclusion in Samantar, it did indeed say that what applies in the absence of a controlling statute is common law. Um, But as uh, readers of that decision know well, it didn't use the qualifier federal, although it's really hard to imagine how it could be anything other than federal common law, which we know persists in discrete pockets of the law. And I think immunities is one of them. So uh, the back and forth occasioned by this case, um, which really does get into these longstanding multi-layered debates about the role of common law posterior, the status of international law in that common law, the role of the executive in formulating positions based on customary international law and the deference the executive's legal positions are owed, all 
percolate to the surface once we get rid of the statute. Bill Dodge and I, Ingrid's co-author on her brief, have an article uh, in the Fordham Law Review that, that pretty exhaustively goes through how all of these issues should play themselves out and are playing themselves out in the individual foreign official immunity context, it may well be that we have a period of time during which this plays itself out in the criminal context. As Ingrid mentioned at the outset, there have been individuals already prosecuted uh, in conjunction with this investigation and case. Uh, Some of them certainly are not uh, in U.S. custody, but the ones who have come within U.S. custody have been prosecuted. Uh, We have, as I mentioned earlier, a variety of indictments of individuals for things like hacking and election interference, you know, maybe we'll see some entity indictments. And uh, I'm, I guess, less concerned about having judges decide. I know um, Lisa Blatt in her argument said, you know, are you going to really leave these issues to 12 Manhattan jurors? I think it's pretty clear, right, that the jury would decide questions of fact, not of law. So the real question is, do we leave this to uh, federal and state court judges in the first instance, absent, as Ingrid said, further congressional clarification? And, you know, I'm less troubled about that, I suppose, than some others in the sense that although, you know, the federal judiciary has certainly gone haywire in various cases and, and maybe getting more politicized, it is a co-equal branch of government and it is the province of the judiciary to say what the law is and we are ultimately dealing with legal questions here in fact one thing i was somewhat struck by and i haven't been listening to a lot of supreme court arguments lately so perhaps this wasn't a unique feature of this case Um, but the court really did dive into a lot of what we might call policy implications of their decision and I guess there's a saying that, you know, judges read the newspapers. Well, quite explicitly, a number of the justices were referencing not only the U.S. relationship with Turkey, but also, you know, which administration had brought this prosecution to begin with, which, of course, originated in the Trump administration, has continued over to the Biden administration. But then I think it was Justice Sotomayor who was really drilling down on, you know, what are the internal safeguards if the FSA doesn't block such a proceeding, what are the internal safeguards against the federal executive or a state executive deciding to prosecute uh, a foreign state? She actually referred explicitly to the news reports of the Trump administration, the Department of Justice under the Trump administration, essentially seeking to punish the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York for bringing this case to begin with. So how those issues are going to infuse the justices' perspectives remain to be seen. But it, it is clear both that it is the province of the judiciary to say what the law is and that the judiciary is uh, acutely aware of the foreign relations context in which these cases are playing out. So we're almost out of time. Uh, Ingrid had to step out. So I'm I'm going to turn to you on this, Shaman, for a kind of closing question um, for us all. Tell us about what you think the ultimate consequences of this case are and where you think the court might go, be going, whether in one direction or a couple of different directions and the implications of those might be kind of from, a, I guess, a broader policy perspective, because that is the issue hanging over 
all of these considerations. We heard Lisa Blatt for for Hulk Bank come in and say this would be a disaster for foreign relations if you start letting any prosecutor, federal or state, start you know bringing charges against foreign governments. It could be you know the way to start a war. I believe she actually said at one point in her argument. Whereas to the contrary, you heard the U.S. government say foreign governments are using state-owned enterprises like Hulk Bank in lots of nefarious ways. And we need a tool to address them. And in our judgment, this is the right one. And taking it away would be itself a big problem and give a lot of impunity to those organizations if you were to extend immunity to them. Is this case as consequential as both sides have tried to paint it out? And and what are do the different ways the court might break? Con- what kind of consequences might those have in the real world in terms of policy consequences that might come out of this once we finally get uh, an opinion from the court? Well, I think it's consequential, but maybe only in the short term, Scott, and here's why. I think Congress, uh, as hamstrung as it is on so many issues, uh, will step in to fix whatever the court does in in the following ways. I think if the court says uh, that there is no legal obstacle to this prosecution, Congress may well step in to make clear that either there's some sort of removal provision or would make some sort of uh, statutory preemptive law in this area if we don't want to wait for a state or municipal level prosecution to come along and have judges have to wrangle over immunity preemption doctrines. Uh, So that may well happen if the case goes forward. If the Supreme Court says, you know, 1604 says what it means, even though it didn't mean what it said, or whichever way I phrased that last time, uh, sort of takes it as as an absolute bar, even though it wasn't intended that way, then I imagine we will see a request to Congress to authorize uh, at least federal criminal prosecutions of instrumentalities for their commercial activities and maybe for something beyond their commercial activities. And that's actually a scenario that worries me more for the following reason. I actually, having worked in the executive branch, feel that uh, although the sort of internal checks and balances within the executive branch that some of the justices were you know, trying to get the representative of the United States to specify <laughs> with with limited success, um, I think those internal checks and balances, while not perfect, um, certainly have at least so far resulted in a fairly cautious approach to these prosecutions. Certainly not as cautious as some would like and maybe more cautious than others, um, but it hasn't been a complete free-for-all. I think that if we put this into Congress's hands, uh, having been on the hot seat in a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on proposals to basically strip China of sovereign immunity for COVID-19, you know, once you start opening up the bucket of exceptions to immunity, I think it's it's very difficult with, you know, individual members of Congress who are accountable to their constituents to suggest that a foreign state should have immunity in any circumstance, because by definition, immunity is an obstacle to recovery, right? Or an obstacle to moving forward uh, and imposing criminal penalties. And so I do worry more about a position in which Congress is opening up the immunity can of worms, so to speak, uh, than one in which it's cabining uh, state court exercise or state prosecutorial discretion with a view to 
you know, preserving uh, federal foreign relations authority. Uh, so I, I think either way, we're bound to see some sort of legislative response. And the outcome of this case uh, will obviously matter to Hulk Bank in terms of whether or not this particular prosecution goes forward. Um, but after that, I think the can will essentially be kicked to the, uh, the legislative arena. Well, if that happens, we will certainly have more opportunity to discuss it here on the Lawfare Podcast. But until then, Schmen Keitner and Ingrid Worth, thank you for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks on behalf of both of us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues, Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howe, and our audio engineer was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.